Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Hello, friends in the CTP world. This is Peter Hunt, back in the Proper Lookout. This week, I thought I would talk you through the McCabe-Kerwood Mostly at Fort guidelines. Now, some listeners may have seen these guidelines before. If not, I have left a link on the Proper Lookout podcast page of the McCabe-Kerwood website. There's also a link on the insurance page of our website. Starting at the beginning, the Mostly at Fort test is only relevant in the statutory benefits arena of Maya. It has no application to common law claims. In general terms, an injured person ceases to be entitled to stat benefits after 26 weeks if they were mostly at fault for the accident. The relevant sections are Section 3.11 for weekly payments and Section 3.28 for treatment and care. So what does mostly at fault mean? Well, those sections say that an injured person is mostly at fault if their contrib neg is greater than 61%. The Mostly at Fault guidelines give some guidance to the kinds of claims which might involve greater than 61% contributory negligence. Keen listeners will have noticed the words guidelines, guidance, and might. I use those words deliberately. Nothing is set in stone. No two cases are exactly alike. These are only guidelines. All we have tried to do is set out some general tips to help stakeholders assess whether a particular injured person was mostly at fault. What we did was go back through old case law, as helpfully summarised for the most part by our McCabe Kerwood case notes, divided them into categories and ranked them from the highest level of contrib neg to the lowest. The brief summaries are attached to the guidelines. Having gone through this exercise, some pretty clear patterns emerged, which spawned the mostly at fault guidelines. I should pause here to here and note that I have visited the CIRA website to see whether they've published any miscellaneous DRS decisions on mostly of fault disputes, but none are up on the website. CIRA, if you're listening, it'll be great to see how DRS assessors are dealing with this issue. The decisions on minor injuries and weekly payment disputes are fascinating and provide terrific guidance to practitioners. It'll be great if that could be replicated by posting some mostly of fault decisions as well. Okay, so that's my preamble. Now let's dive into the meat of the subject. As you'll see, the guidelines identify six categories of contrib-neg cases. The first is alcohol cases, where the injured person is a passenger, as distinct from the driver. In those claims, the existing case law suggests that a finding in excess of 61% is arguable where the injured passenger was aware that the driver was heavily intoxicated and voluntarily enter the vehicle, and there is some other factor at play, such as the failure to wear a seatbelt or knowledge that the driver was inexperienced. The high watermark for this category is McKenzie and the nominal defendant. In McKenzie, an injured pillion passenger knew that the driver of a motor vehicle was heavily intoxicated. In addition, the passenger who owned the motorcycle knew that the driver was inexperienced with motorcycles and urged him to ride the thing anyway. The Court of Appeal found 80% contrib neg. It must be said, however, that it's difficult to identify a clear pattern in cases where the injured passenger knew the driver was intoxicated. 
In Fitzgerald and Danzy, for example, the injured person crawled out of the cabin of a utility vehicle and sat on the rear tray. The driver tried to stop him but failed. He kept driving anyway and the injured person fell over. The Court of Appeal found 50% contributory negligence in that case. But I think we can safely say that if the injured passenger knew that the driver was intoxicated and, for example, inexperienced or fatigued, then a finding of more than 61% is arguable. The next category is claims where the injured person was an intoxicated driver. In that category, our guidelines suggest that most intoxicated drivers will have their contributory negligence assessed over 61%, provided their intoxication contributed to the accident in some way. Next is pedestrian cases where the driver was at fault. The case law suggests that to be mostly at fault, the pedestrian has to have been reckless to the presence of vehicles on the road or injured when they gave the driver little time to react because, for example, they were running. Looking at the case summaries, and you'll find the citations in the annexes to the guidelines for each of these cases. In Turkmani, the pedestrian jogged across the road and was struck by a vehicle. The Court of Appeal found 80% contribnig. In Hawthorne, the plaintiff was walking on a dark and poorly lit roadway, reckless to the presence of vehicles, and the Court of Appeal found 80% contribnig. In Hawes, the injured pedestrian ran across George Street on a busy weekday morning into the path of the defendant's vehicle. The Court of Appeal found 75% contributory negligence in that claim. By contrast, in Senton, the plaintiff walked across all westbound lanes before being hit, stepping into the eastbound lanes. The Court of Appeal found each party had an, an equal opportunity to see each other and found 50% contributory negligence. So that's pedestrian cases where the driver is at fault. The next category is where the accident is a blameless accident. As most listeners would know, in blameless accident claims, now known as no-fault accidents under Meyer, the test for contributory negligence is the extent to which the injured person deviated from the standard of care expected from them. The two major cases are Axiac, where the Court of Appeal found 50%, and Davis and Swift, where the Court of Appeal found 80%. The major distinction between the two cases is that the plaintiff in Davis was an adult, whereas the plaintiff in Axiac was just 14 years old. In our view, the age and experience of the pedestrian is a critical factor in assessing whether a pedestrian injured in a no-fault accident is guilty of more than 61% contribneg, given that we're looking at this, the extent to which the pedestrian deviated from the standard of care expected from them. We expect more from adults than kids. The final category I want to discuss is driver versus driver claims. Our review indicates that where both drivers are partially at fault, the outcome is likely to be below 50% contrib neg. This stands to reason, I think, given that both drivers contributed to the accident. To get over 61%, the injured driver has to be reckless by, for example, overtaking on a crest or on a curve. So that's my review of the McCabe Kerwood Mostly Afford Guidelines. I hope you found it helpful. Please contact me or one of the team if you have any questions, or in fact, if you disagree with our assessment, we'd like to hear from you as well. Until my next visit to The Proper Lookout, I wish you all the best. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Proper Lookout podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt 
at mccabecurwood.com.au or visit our website to see McCabe Curwood's full team of specialists.